0: Take the time to call Transformations Treatment Center for the answers, 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725, or go online to transformationstreatment.center. Calling us from Virginia, we have Chris Strom on the phone. Chris is retired NYPD sergeant. He's also co-author of the book, Brooklyn to Baghdad, an NYPD intelligence cop fights terror in iraq chris thanks so much for joining us on the show thank you very much for having me jay appreciate it very much you got a big story i cannot wait to talk about some of this i felt like i was in battle zones of baltimore but baghdad that's a a different story altogether before we get lost in a conversation do me a favor tell people where they get more information about the book where they can buy it and all that
1: sure yeah the book is on uh, amazon.com and uh barnes and noble and um it's in a few select Independently owned bookstores as well, and if you Google uh, "Brooklyn the Bag" that uh, on the uh, internet, all kinds of information pops up about the book, previews and reviews and things like that.
0: And you sent me a hardcover copy of the book. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I haven't had a chance to look at it, but man, it looks like it's well done. It, how many years did it take you to write this book?
1: Well, it took me about ten years for from actually uh, getting it actually published in a hardcover format. But I was uh, doing my due diligence for about, I guess, about seven years until I finally got signed by Chicago Review Press, which is my uh, publisher. And then once I signed the contract, uh, it was three years from the day almost that I signed the contract that the book actually you know, was made real into a hardcover book. So. And
0: that's not counting all the years of experience you had to go through both in Baghdad and in New York to provide all the information for this book.
1: No, absolutely not. No, no, no. This uh, I had 20 years, over 20 years with the NYPD. Uh, the last five years as the section leader in the counterterrorism division in the intelligence division. So, uh, you know, there's there's a lot that's in the book. A lot about my my past experience and then the uh, post experience from the uh, New York City Police Department.
0: Well, how do you go from being a cop in New York to being in Baghdad now? I know some guys who've done this, and you're certainly not alone, but you're not in the majority. Not everybody does this.
1: Yeah, well, it was <laughs> it was a kind of a, a, a strange situation. I had moved my whole family down to Roanoke with the hope of going into business with somebody, and um, that relationship didn't last very long. So I found myself unemployed, and I was like, well, you know, what am I going to do? And, you know, I, I, you know I, I loved doing police work, but I wasn't going to be a cop again in uniform. And uh, my wife ended up filling out a bunch of online applications. And and a long story short, I got a phone call from uh, L3 Communications in in Reston, Virginia. And uh, they start describing to me this project and ask me if I'd be interested in it.
0: Let me get this straight. Your wife decides, I'm going to go on the internet and I'm going to find him a job. I'm going to make sure that job is so far away, he'll be on the planet in a combat zone.
1: Well, it was. I mean, it was, there were several jobs that were filled out, and they were looking for what they call uh, LEOs or LEPs, uh, law enforcement professionals, people that had experience in, in interrogation and interviewing and um, intelligence work. And I think this was just one of those jobs that she just said, "Hey, I'm just going to fill out a bunch of uh, things, cast a wide net, and then this company ended up calling me." Uh, so, I and to be quite honest with you, I was actually in the basement of my. Um, house doing some painting, and I was, like, debating, do I even want to put my my paintbrush down and, and take this call, and um, so I ended up taking the call, and then the person was describing to me the job, and, it, you know, it sounded fascinating, and, uh, you know, I, I, I was like, I'm in. I'm, I'm interested, I'm in, but I said, you know, I really got to run it by my wife uh, <laughs> to make sure she's she's okay with it, because it was going to be, at minimum, a one-year commitment,
0: so. And uh, all these police wives, they've, they've gone through it. They've gone through the fear, the worry, the concern uh, during your entire police career. So then have that compounded by, okay, now I'm going to Baghdad in, in a war zone. Uh, how did she do that? How did she manage to make it through that? I got
1: I got to tell you, I, I'm very blessed to have a great wife. Uh, we're married 25 years, uh, and um, she's really a cop's wife. I mean, um, she's, she gets it. You know, many times I'd be at work, and, um, you know, in... Like they say, you know, police work, and in particular in New York City, um, as it relates to counterterrorism, you know, it never sleeps. And, um, you know, many times I I would have somewhat of a schedule. I I generally started at 8 in the morning and finished my tour at 10 o'clock at night. And, um, you know, I'd be, you know, basically grabbing my coat and and keys to my car and getting ready to leave. And, you know, the phone would ring, and then, you know, uh, something would pop up on the news that was related to, you know, whatever incident I was doing a, a live response to. And my wife would be like... Uh, are you going to be late tonight? And you know, it was like a code, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to be a little late tonight." You know, don't wait up. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah. So she, so she's definitely a cop's wife, and she's and she gets it, and she's been um, my best friend and, and and so supportive and a great mom to my kids. Really.
0: Please tell her I said thank you for what she's done too, because that's not an easy task being on that side of the badge.
1: No, it certainly isn't. You're you're right about that, Jay. Certainly not.
0: And I really didn't know until I retired, years after I retired how much people like my mother worried, even though I was very good at what I did, there's still that nagging fear. I had plenty of close calls. I'm sure you did as well, but I really didn't comprehend it until I was away from the job.
1: No. And I, I think that's a lot of it. I think you're so wrapped up into it and so focused. And, um, and again, it's not a question of, uh, are, are people fearless? You know, that fear is, is, is present with everybody. It's part of the you know human condition but i don't think it's something that you dwell on because you're so focused on what it is that you have to do that you just don't think about it and then afterwards you know after it's all over you're like especially as you get older uh, you know i'm i'm 59 now and and you and you reflect back and you go wow that was some cr- i did some crazy things and i really took some unnecessary risks maybe that i shouldn't have taken but you know that's just part of the job that's part of the the excitement and the fulfillment of the job quite honestly, I think I think that's what makes the job so rewarding. It's not about the money, of course you, you you know people should be paid for and compensated for what they do, but you know police work is something that if you love it, you know the money is really secondary the going to going to work every day is the bigger part, not the money.
0: I found myself thinking back, and this is the other day on the couch, and granted, I got hurt and retired very young, so I've been retired more than twenty five years okay thinking of some of the instances I've been in, they're really close calls, and they're really violent scenarios, and I was like, wow. And you know what, it's not, it's not like an act of fear, but that nagging doubt comes into mind is, is, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like, I was very, very, very lucky.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I agree, I understand, when I say I agree, I know what you're saying, you know, there's things like car chases that, you know, my, my, uh, my daughter is fixated with this uh, show, Live PD, and, um, you know, it's right there. It's, you know, it's unedited, and it's happening right there, and it's, there's parts that are very humorous, which there's you know, a whole side of police, uh, police work that's very humorous and funny when you're looking at it objectively, and, uh, and then some of it's kind of morbidly funny that, you know, people would be like, that's kind of disturbing, but at the same time, it's cop humor, and you kind of laugh at it at the same time.
0: I'm I'm tracking with you on that. I can't watch those shows. <laughs> I've had too much adrenaline gets going when I don't want it to. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Click, like, and follow. We are talking with Chris Strom. Chris is retired NYPD. He also went to Baghdad. We're going to talk more about that in just a few moments. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. All too often we
1: find ourselves getting asked where can I find other great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Because of this, we decided to create our own network of podcasts here on law enforcement today. You can access top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and free app. Head to letradioshow.com, click the be heard tab and there you will find our network link where we will continue to add podcasts from first responders and more. Remember, that's letradioshow.com to find out more information about law enforcement today, our podcast network, and to download
0: our free app, letradioshow.com. Back to our conversation with Chris Strom on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Chris is retired NYPD sergeant. He also spent time in Baghdad. He is co-author of of the book Brooklyn to Baghdad an NYPD intelligence cop fights terror in Iraq we're going to talk about that your time in Iraq in a little bit but first I want to go back to something a lot of people really don't comprehend The, the real world experience of policing especially when you talk about policing in America's biggest city and biggest agency the NYPD so bird's eye view your police career from start to finish
1: Okay, well, like most people, uh, I started out on patrol, and then from there I worked my way up into uh, anti-crime, which is um, a plainclothes outfit, and um, you basically work at a precinct level addressing uh, violent crimes, robberies, guns, stolen cars, and and things of that nature. And then from that, I I got involved in a police shooting, and um, to make that a very short story, uh, because of that, there was a little bit of controversy, and they... I, I fared well in the shooting, but they just didn't want me to stay in the precinct, so I actually got laterally promoted to what they call a citywide task force. So it's basically anti-crime, but now I had the whole borough of Queens, and I'm doing the same exact thing I was doing at a precinct level, but now it's, it's, all, it's all the uh, precincts within, the, uh, within Queens County of New York City. And then from there I got promoted to sergeant, and I got transferred from Queens after being in Queens for 13 years to Brooklyn, and I worked in this precinct called the 7-6 Precinct, which was in the Red Hook section of uh, Brooklyn. And it had beautiful little neighborhoods like Carroll Gardens, but it also had its, its share of violence and, and housing projects, the Red Hook and the Gowanus projects. And I started back out on patrol all over again in uniform. And then shortly after that, I got promoted laterally within the precinct into a street narcotics enforcement unit. So now I'm back in plain clothes. And I'm doing what they call uh, narcotics enforcement at a precinct level. And we're, in, we're enforcing um, street-level dealings. We're doing search warrants. And in the process of doing all this, we're recovering guns. And the arrest activity for this particular unit that I was in charge of, um, it, it went through the roof. Uh, I worked with some really gifted people, some amazing people, aggressive cops. Uh, it was like the United Nations of, of guys and girls, people who I'm very uh, close with to this day. Uh, that really made me look like a superstar, and um, from that, nine um, eleven ends up happening, and now narcotics enforcement is taking a back seat, and now everybody's on edge because of you know the the terrorism tax, and uh, so now we're basically all staying close by in the precinct, addressing issues within the precinct. You know, people were very hypersensitive about things that they saw. You know, that if you see something, say something. After about six months or seven months of that, we started the narcotics unit back up again, and then from that, I was tapped by the actual precinct commander to take a spot within the intelligence division, and I was saying to myself, I'm already doing street narcotics, and I have a great team, and I love these people, and I have steady days off, and, you know, we're having fun, and, and you know, going to work was like something I looked forward to every day, honestly. And the laughs that I had, and the camaraderie, and all that stuff—like you know, like I say, I'm still very close to these people to this day. And so now, when what ends up happening is there's an opening for this spot, and I don't really want to take it because I don't think life's going to get any better than than what it is right now. And to make a long story very short, my son had gotten sick, and I was home with him for eight weeks while he was recovering, and that was because of the previous pre- precinct commanders helping me out and, and making sure that that happened. Full pay, of course. And um, when the new commander came in, he asked me to take the spot. And I didn't want to take it at first. And then my old commander had called me and said, listen, can you do me a favor? Can you take this spot within the intelligence division? If it doesn't work out, you can come work for me in the 114 precinct, which was over in Queens. And uh, he goes, and well, I'll find you a soft landing. So I take the spot. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to be wearing a suit and tie. This is not going to be my, my, my thing. This is not, you know, I'm a street guy. I want to be out working with the team. And it turns out to be the best career decision I, I, I almost didn't make because now I'm working with another group of people that are equally gifted, smart people, and now I'm doing more intense uh, investigations that are really helping keep the city safe. And I I, 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 I'm still very close with a lot of these people to this day. In fact, some of most of them, over half of them, more than a half probably came to my book signing at Book Review in New York uh, when the book was finally launched in November. So it's been it's been. It's been very interesting. It's been very, very interesting.
0: Thank you for your service. It's very much appreciated. And I'm sitting here thinking, listen to you talk, Chris, and I remember my own career working narcotics, and I've never done intelligence like you guys, but I would think that working narcotics for a long time really sets you up because so much of it is behind the scenes. Who's the players? Who's the source? Where are they getting this from? What's this guy's job? Yeah. The adrenaline part of the party running and gunning and pulling guns and armed people off the street was quite the rush. But there was a lot of actually very cerebral thinkers in in that line of work. I don't say that I was one of them. I think I was <laughs> smarter than most, but I was more of a a, of a go getter.
1: Right, right, right. Well, you know, I I you know I understand what you're saying because I kind of felt like you know like I said I'm working with a great team of people and I'm like. This is fun, and now i 'm doing intelligence work, which is you know very intense, and um, you know there's there 's a different application of law, you know the Patriot Act and things like that and basically you know now this is a, you know i 'm not just doing an, a narcotics enforcement and i 'm looking at other things and still picking up other arrests as collateral, you know whether it 's a a stolen car or possibly uh, somebody you know carrying a gun or things like that, but the process is fundamentally the same, but now. There's a lot more surveillance involved. There's a lot more nuance. In other words, everybody knows what a crime is. Even if you're not a cop, you know that taking property from a store or hitting somebody with a with a weapon it's a crime. We're talking about terrorism now. And now, is there a nexus to terrorism? Well, so I'll give I'll give a, a, an example. Uh, back in the day, you know, people would go into and they would buy, you know, in bulk, you know, all kinds of bolts and nuts and things for like home home projects. Well, now. You know, somebody goes into a and they buy, you know, 50 pounds worth of, uh, you know, threaded pipe, and the guy doesn't appear to be a plumber, and now you get a phone call. Well, is this guy just buying it for somebody else, or does he have something nefarious in mind with these pieces of pipe? I mean, you don't know. But, the, but in the intelligence division, that's, the, that's the, the, the litmus test. If you don't know, then that's an investigation. You have to prove it otherwise before you can prove it, rule it in, before you can rule it out. It's amazing. You got to rule it out before you can rule it in. You have to, you have to substantiate your finding that that was just an honest guy buying pipe for his contractor at his house. But you could not answer that question from the desk or a computer terminal. It required getting out, doing some investigation, doing some door knocking and actually talking. Here's a novel idea to some real people, Yeah, real people, not just, you know, imaginary people you know so and you couldn't close it out from the phone so i had a group of eight detectives that worked for me and uh, believe me they were out every day making contacts every day
0: hey folks when you have a chance check out our facebook page do a search on facebook for law enforcement today radio show when you get there click like and follow as click like and follow law enforcement today radio show on facebook this is the law enforcement Today show we are talking with chris strom retired nypd intelligence sergeant and also co-author book uh, about going to baghdad i'll tell you more about that in a few moments don't go anywhere we'll be right back finally our heroes have access to world-class program for ptsd anxiety depression and more The Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for substance abuse, addiction, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Plus, they offer complete treatment for mental health issues for those without substance abuse problems. we a conversation with Chris Strom on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Chris is a retired NYPD sergeant. He worked in their intelligence division when he retired. And he also is co-author of the book Brooklyn to Baghdad, an NYPD intelligence cop fights terror in Iraq. Earlier in the conversation, Chris, uh, we were talking about how you retired, you moved to Roanoke, Virginia. What you thought you'd be doing fell through and you wound up getting hired by a company and they want to you shipping you to uh Baghdad Iraq is that what they did
1: yeah actually the, um it, yeah i mean that's the that's the basic premise of it i mean there was a lot of um there was an onboarding pr- uh, process for about 2 weeks of like orientation and familiarity with with uh, with Iraq and then there was also um, over 3 months worth of uh, extensive training
0: when you get to Baghdad how long were you there about a year you said
1: uh, 15 months, okay. all
0: And what time months. frame were you there?
1: I got there in February uh, of 2008, and I left in May of uh, 2009.
0: Crazy time back then. Uh, I'm, and, and I'm viewing from television, news reports, and videos you see on social media and everything else. It was an extremely violent time, an extremely violent area. And what was your job when you were assigned there?
1: The the basic premise of what we were going to do was attack the network. So the insurgency was infested all throughout the uh, uh, Iraq and in, in southern Baghdad, all over Iraq really, but primarily around Baghdad because th- that's the, the the political hub of where they're trying to create the most fear and destabilize the government. We are basically tr- trying to round up these people through surveillance or or whatever. I don't want to go too too in depth about h- how it is that we actually track these people. But, once we found these people, uh, usually about three o'clock at uh, three o'clock in the morning, we would pull them out of their bed, or you know, or I would pull them out of their bed or somebody would pull them out of the bed, and I would take them into uh, a bathroom of the house, and I would do an interrogation. And based on what this person would tell me, he would either give up more of his friends or deny or whatever. And as this interrogation is going on inside the bathroom of the home, we have people searching a house and they're finding actual, physical uh, evidence that's related to bomb-making components. They're finding documents, and also they're finding uh, lots of money, uh, both Iraqi money and U.S. Uh, money.
0: So, hence, back to the people skills from your days in the intelligence unit, that really must have come to the forefront and was used quite a bit.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, people would say to me, well, you know, uh, how did you do it? I mean, um, you know, you're, you're in a very austere Environment. Uh, actually, most of the time that we, I had the aid of a flashlight tucked under my uh, shoulder. But the, the the premise and the technique and people lying and human condition is, is the same. Behavioral affect, dropping their eyes, swallowing—all these different things come into play. And yeah, I'm using a translator. But you know, the translator I'm using, uh, one one of them was uh, this fellow Mawad. I mean, we just—it was like it was perfect synchronicity. It was less than a five-second delay. If you if you can imagine, so the level of intensity and the mirroring of my body language and my and my emotion was such that the, the guy never even looked at the uh, uh, the uh, interpreter. Mawad. He they would just focus in on me, and uh, there was real fear. And sometimes you didn't have to in, induce fear. Sometimes these people would just were so f- afraid from being pulled out of their bed at three o'clock in the morning that they voluntarily gave you the information. They said, "I'll tell you whatever you want to know," you know. So it, you had both extremes. You had people that were hardcore terrorists, and you had people that were just, you know, uh, franchise of, uh, associates of, of the actual
0: insurgency. When I hear you talking about this, Chris, I'm, uh, first thing is I'm going to my own experience saying, okay, what, what can I relate to in this? And the truth is, I don't think I can. Do you see a correlation between the street cop days and, and your interactions with people and interviewing potential terrorists in Baghdad?
1: I think there is, but I think what ends up happening is you're so, like I said, you're so focused on this, what's what's going on. And and you know that these people are bad. Like, this isn't a guy that got stopped by some moral security because he, he lifted a coat or a pair of sneakers or something like that. This guy killed a soldier. So my level of commitment and the people that were working that supported me on this team, which, by the way, this is a team effort. I didn't, I didn't solve all the problems. I didn't find all these people on my own. I'm not taking credit for other people's work. But the... You're so amped up on adrenaline that when you finally break somebody or you finally get a nugget of intelligence that can take you to the next bad guy. I can't even explain it. You could pick the most favorite thing that you love to do, whether it's water skiing or fishing or riding a motorcycle, and multiply that times 10 and know that realistically that's going to happen every time you go out there if you find this person.
0: So there's a big reward for you. There's a lot of motivation to get these guys because you said they're, they're serious hardcore bad guys. These these are people that kill uh, for a political ideology or a religious ideology or whatever the, their motives were. It doesn't really matter to me. They're still killers. So you have a lot of motivation. So I can see the reward. I can see the, the sense of satisfaction. Part of what I think think about when we're having this conversation, Chris, is what I see in Hollywood, in the television, in the movies, and the way they do things, and although I have no experience judging by how badly they portray what police do, I'd imagine they're totally off base when it comes to these military intervention intelligence interviews.
1: Yeah, I, you know, listen, they, the, these movies that portray the water boring and this enhanced interrogation and all that stuff... All I did was talk to people. Now, did I raise my voice occasionally? Uh, yeah. I'm not, am I going to sit here and tell you I did otherwise? No, I'm not going to say that. But the, the, at the end of the day, the military and the U.S. government spent billions of dollars, and it's all open source. You can Google it, on shiny objects that really didn't do anything to help stop the ID threat that were killing, killing U.S. soldiers and coalition forces. At the end of the day getting out there, just like in the NYPD with the intelligence division, and talking to somebody, physically talking to somebody, not over a phone, but having that person in front of you and searching their house and doing, doing your due diligence, that's what made the change. We had two 30-day periods where there wasn't a single IED event, no injuries, no fatalities, unheard of in our area of operation. But to get to that point, took us about six or seven months before the team started generating some goodwill. Because you have to understand, we went out there with the Army. These were joint operations. This wasn't like you know, a group of contractors that just went out on their own. We had U.S. Army drivers. We had um, super, super sophisticated back support from the intelligence shop at, at headquarters. I mean, this is all choreographed with people all doing their part. Again, as I say, a team effort. But in spite of all of that that we had people that were getting upset with us because now the the army is trying to figure out, in particular, the special forces community, how is it that a bunch of 48-year-old guys are going out there and taking off the uh, deck tier one targets? How is it that that target was out there for six months? And this is the gang that supposedly couldn't shoot straight is picking up targets. We rounded up 91 tier one targets, 91. that. Otherwise, it would have been actioned by special operations and special forces. So the team, the genius of the team was, the, was, was just that, the collective effort from everybody on the team doing their part to make this mission a
0: success. I think it's phenomenal. I hear you say that the first stringers, the special ops guys, and I got nothing against them, uh, nothing at all. But why is it that these old 48-year-old guys are are pulling off what we cannot? It's amazing stuff. We are talking with Chris Strom. Chris has a a long career in the NYPD, retired at the rank of sergeant, uh, is an intelligence unit in uh, New York. And he was sent to Baghdad as part of an intelligence unit there for a contractor. And he's co-author of a book, Brooklyn to Baghdad, an NYPD intelligence cop fights terror in Iraq. Of all the radio stations in the United States, there's only one show like ours. The Law Enforcement Today radio show. And on Facebook, there's only one official page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. That's Law Enforcement Today radio show. On Facebook. When you get there, click like and follow. If you've missed past episodes of the Law Enforcement Today radio show, never fear. You can listen to them online as a podcast. Just go to our website, letradioshow.com, where you'll find all the podcast episodes and much more. That's letradioshow.com. We're going to take a short break, I promise you. We'll be right back. Did you know that 32% of Americans listen to at least one podcast a month and 22% listen to podcasts weekly? After episodes of the Law Enforcement Today radio show have aired, they're converted to podcasts. Do a Google search for Law Enforcement Today podcast and be sure to subscribe for free. Hi, this is John J. Wiley, host of the show. One of the questions I get all the time is where can I find new podcasts to check out? You can find podcasts from all genres posted daily on the Podcast Zone Facebook page. From established chart-topping podcasts to new up-and-comer podcasts, you can find them all posted at the Podcast Zone Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Podcast Zone. Look for the bright green profile image and be sure to click like and follow. And tell your friends about the Podcast Zone Facebook page. This is the Law enforcement Fourth Day Show. We're talking with Chris Strom. Chris is retired NYPD, uh, retired the rank of sergeant. He also spent time in Baghdad as a civilian defense contractor working intelligence. And he's co-authored the book, Brooklyn to Baghdad, an NYPD intelligence cop fights terror in Iraq. Fascinating conversation about your time in Baghdad. We could do a whole show on that, but I want to go back to your time with the NYPD again, Towards the end of the last segment, we talked about how Hollywood gets it all wrong. Uh, police movies, police television shows. Quite honestly, Chris, I started watching more of the BBC police shows because they tend to do a better job, in my opinion, of developing the characters. Because, man, I worked with some awesome people. And you said earlier, you're like the United Nations of cops. You had people from every walk of life. And that's the way it was for me, even back in the 80s. But Hollywood doesn't show it that way.
1: Yeah, I you know I I don't know like I, I God's been good to me. I, I've been very fortunate, and um, you, you know you get to you get to work with a good group of people and fun people and people that you love. I mean, uh, there's I'm I'm very close to these people, and I get emotional when I think about them because um, it's it. I did four years in the Marine Corps, and I and I have very good friends from the Marine Corps, and I guess because I'm further removed from that, it doesn't affect me as much. But these people. I still see and I still talk to you now with social media and things like that. I still communicate with them on a regular basis. But I agree with you that Hollywood doesn't do as good a job as they probably could do with the development. Every once in a while, you'll see a really good movie where there is good script writing and there is good character development and things like that. But um, in these shows that are episodic, it, it doesn't, I don't think it translates very well.
0: No, it does, so. do. and In the news, when i want say Hollywood. I'm talking about television, movies, and news as well. Right. I, and Agreed. one of the, my biggest pet peeves is, and we see it all the time, and one of the reasons that law enforcement today, by the way, check our website, letradioshow.com, great news articles, an officer was shot, and, and the news media will say, the good news is the injuries are not life-threatening. They'll be okay. And that's all they ever say. And I know- right. That that's not the case. That there's some man or woman, some brother or sister, that's laid up in a hospital bed, going through multiple surgeries, and their family is wondering what's going to happen. Where are we at? Where, where? And it's a long, drawn out process to get to where they're okay.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Listen, you know this thing of you know shooting somebody at ten o'clock, and then you're in the bar at one o'clock in the morning. The amount of paperwork and, and the amount of uh, oversight, uh, and, and I'm just going to speak about what I know, in the NYPD, I mean, they just have they have a shooting response team. Uh, in fact, they probably have one for each borough. I'm not that familiar with it, but, you know, you, rest assured, if there's a shooting, uh, you're not going home, uh, you know, and you're probably going to the hospital, and they're probably going to take your gun and shield, and they're going to do an extensive investigation. They're going to take your weapon and do a ballistics check, and... And if God forbid, there's more than one person that fired a shot, then it's a real, you know, yeah, it's a real, uh, it's a real uh, rodeo. <laughs> so
0: I can tell you from my own experience, uh, one of the last shootings I was in, I I was throwing up afterwards, and I was experienced street cop, and I, this was not my first trip going down that road. It was such a horrific affair, and the emotional roller coaster afterwards. You don't go through something like that, and then you're okay the next day. I, maybe there are people like that. I don't know anyone like that. We're all somewhat changed. I don't mean that for the negative. I don't mean that as we're damaged goods or anything horrible. I just mean you can't go through that, see what we see, experience what we experience, have to use deadly force and be the same guy you were when you were 18.
1: Well, yeah, and I think I think to your point, it's more like post-traumatic stress disorder, which is now – I, I mean become part of the American uh, vernacular because, you know, this is what's been going on for years, and they recognize it in the military, but it's really, I, I mean, you're just in a different environment. It's the same application. Yeah, I get it. You know, the people aren't shooting you from a high point uh, on a daily basis or on a routine basis, but but the, the, the effect of taking someone's life or shooting at somebody who's shooting at you or applying deadly physical force toward you, yeah, that that's a psychological trauma. That um, you know, to dismiss it uh, or say one is worse than the other, it, it's just not true. They're both equally damaging psychologically, and it has to be addressed. And I think, depending on the department, uh, depending on the internal affairs, and depending on the shooting investigative team, however that works, depending on which department you're from, and certainly depending on now if it's if it's there's a racial component attached to it. Now, when I say racial component. I don't mean that the that the cop is racist. I don't I'm just saying that if it turns out that the cop is black and he shoots a white guy or vice versa, the cop is white and shoots a black guy. It's not that he shot the guy because he was black or because the guy was white. It just happened that way. Right. It just happened that way. But it can't just be that way on T V. It can't just be that way uh, for, the, for the sake of, that, like, I, like, like you went out or I went out with the idea, I want to shoot somebody other than my own skin color because I have nothing better to do with my time in my life. I want to be dragged through the mud and go to the grand jury and be on the desk for six months or a year until they can resolve this problem. That's exactly what I want. I mean, no, I don't know it's anybody. It's
0: ludicrous. I've never encountered anybody that wanted to go through that. And of course, not. Of course I, I, not. I tell people that they're that going into police work now. And for those who are considering it, look, I still love the job. I love being a police. And I'm sure you did too, Chris. I just don't like everything that goes along with it. Uh, right. And, and the politics, To so just, I'll leave that alone. But one of the things I'll tell them is that... If you think you're going to come through this totally unscathed, you're delusional. And someone gave me great advice a long time ago. And they said, look, you have a dentist you go to once a year, get your teeth inspected or checked or whatever you want to call it. You do the same thing with a general practitioner, get a physical once a year. You should go to a therapist once a year who's qualified and experienced in in police-related trauma and just talk with them and, and be proactive about it. And that's one of the things I tell them, and I know I get the same look back from them that I would have given when I was 25, 26. I'm fine. You're wasting your breath.
1: <laughs> well, you know, the, here's, the, here's the problem, and I and I agree with you. I mean, as you get older, hopefully you get smarter. I'd like to think I got a little bit smarter, and I don't think the same way I did when I was 25 as I do now at 59. But, um, you know, there's a stigma attached to it, and people are, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a two-edged sword. On the one hand, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, when I was 25, I would have said I would have looked the other way and probably been dismissive at the same time. But the problem is, is that if it's an official uh, therapy session, meaning that the department sponsored it or it's a, uh, a police doctor that you went to go see, you know, they have to make a judgment call right there and then. Is this guy a danger to himself and others, his family, is he fit to be on the street? And believe it or not, I know this might come as a shock to you, uh, psychiatrists are very risk adverse or psychologists. So if you say, yeah, you know, how, how are you feeling today? Well, you know, I'm a little down in the dumps. So, oh, you know, you know what? I think we need to take his gun and shield. Cause he said he was down in the dumps. Oh, you didn't know, let me finish my story. I'm down in the dumps because my dog that I was very close to passed away. Or I'm down in the dumps because my, my kid is sick or I'm down I'm down in the dumps because my, my mother or my father just passed away. And, but it doesn't matter because now you said, oh, You're not you're not psychologically fit to perform your duties when and 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 so I'm saying this all because that is what's causing the stigma and the reluctance for people to reach out. Yes, I I get it. You're upset. But you know what? Just to be sure, we're taking your gun and shield. And now it's another six months before they reevaluate you. To say, you're, you're ready to go back out on the street and, and hammer down.
0: And back then, we called it the rubber gun squad. If that happened to you, it was uh, humiliating, and you were the butt of jokes, yep. and it was yep. not good. So that's why I always tell people, be proactive and do it on your own. Don't wait uh, for the department or someone else uh, to, to force you to do that. We're talking Chris Strom. Chris wrote a book, or co-authored a book, called Brooklyn to Baghdad. And NYPD Intelligence Cop Fights Terror in Iraq. Where can people get more information about the book, buy it, et cetera, et cetera?
1: Yeah, my publisher is Chicago Review Press. Um, I'm very fortunate that they took me on as a new author. Uh, the book can be bought on, online at Barnes & Noble and also Amazon.com and probably some independent stores, primarily probably in the Northeast, not so much, I, I think, um, nationally distributed if you Google Brooklyn to Baghdad online, there's all kinds of information that pops up. If you Google my name, NYPD Sergeant Christopher Strom, all kinds of information pops up uh, related to the book and, and interviews and things like that and reviews.
0: Are you available on social media as well?
1: I am. I'm under uh, Brooklyn to Baghdad, and so also my um, my Instagram is uh, is Brooklyn, but it's not it's um, it's B K L Y N to Baghdad. That's that's pretty much it. I have a Twitter account also.
0: Awesome. You're like all over this thing called the interweb.
1: I, I didn't have anything other than LinkedIn until August of last year. And my <laughs> daughter and the publisher said, you got to get on social media. And I'm like, why do I got to go on social media? But now that I'm on it, I see the value there you go. Of getting, getting word out and letting people know about the book and things. So. Thanks
0: so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated.
1: Thank you very much, Chase. Th- thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it very much.
0: There's only one official facebook page what you do you do a search on facebook for law enforcement today radio show click like and follow there you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show you can contact me we also find unique one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles that is our facebook page law enforcement today radio show be sure to click like and follow we'll see you there I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today Show. We've got another great guest heading your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.